<laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to Failure. Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your. Failure. 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 I can't say that word. Right. You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. Welcome back, everybody. Week five. I'm surprised many of you are still here. Um, especially for tonight, because we're going to be talking about kind of the nuts and bolts of failure. Lots of theory so far. We fail at stuff, right? Fair enough. Um, we know where it comes from. Shame, guilt, all those things. We understand <clears throat> kind of um, grace around some of those things. What else did we talk about? Um, one Risk-taking, thank you, and what we do after failure. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the practical kind of hands-on, nuts-and-bolts portion of what failure looks like in relation to other people. So, I think I've mentioned it before, when we make mistakes, oftentimes that can lead to conflict amongst other people. Would that be fair to say? Has that ever happened to anybody here? Thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only buddy, the only person here who's um, kind of bumped into that dynamic. It would be great. It would be great if everyone were truly understanding, fully gracious, no one was wrapped up in shame, and when mistakes happened, they didn't compromise our relationships. But beginning in, um, I don't know, Adam and Eve, the first two people on the planet, they had a little bit of conflict and failure. Fair enough? It's not my fault, Lord. She did it. There we go. We got some blaming. We got some shaming already. It's the woman you gave me. You gave me a defective model. If you would have given me a better model, this would have worked out a lot better, right? So already the blame game's going on and from the very beginning. Here's what I'd like to ask before we jump in and get started. It's my theory, little hypothesis here, that when we are we little ones, okay, just babies. We tend not to know a whole lot about life. We know the, the big, you know, two. We're hungry and we're tired. And so we are inherently selfish when we are wee babies. And everything else from that, we tend to learn by typically having it modeled, what we observe. They've done these really fascinating studies with these kids that have been grown up in isolation and what they learn and how they cope and how they handle and they have this inability to connect with people. They have this inability to understand kind of just how the world functions because they've never had that model. What if we run the theory that what you have learned about conflict has been learned from what you have seen modeled? Here's what I'm going to ask. I want you to take two three minutes here. If you have some paper and pen, you can write these things down. If not, just make it kind of a mental exercise. And I would like you to think for a minute what you have had modeled growing up when it comes to conflict. Maybe not your own personal conflict, but what you've seen other people in your life, people who are close to you. Maybe when you were younger as kids or, you know, teenagers, maybe even college. What if some of the models you have seen around conflict. What does it look like? How do people handle conflict? Take about two minutes, 
wrestle with this little mental challenge for just a second. A couple years back when I was a facilitator up on the challenge course, we had a high school girls volleyball team come up to the course for the day to just work on team building and group dynamics and things like that. And this was probably one of the harder groups for me to work with because they just weren't engaging, shall we say. They were still a little reserved, a little standoffish. They weren't willing to put themselves out there kind of any sort of way. Um, they were doing the events, but there wasn't this connection that is um, very possible when you're working up on a challenge course. So we went through the first half of the day, got to lunchtime, and we have this fire pit with some logs around it out, out in the back of the lodge. <clears throat> so all these girls are sitting down to eat lunch around this, around this fire pit. And I'm going, what can I, what can I do to get this group talking? How, how are we going to get them to connect? And so I asked them one question. And with the one question, it changed the whole rest of the day. I asked them this question. I said, ladies, I am a father of a soon-to-be teenage daughter. What advice do you have for me as her dad? And for the rest of lunch, I couldn't get them to stop talking. <laughs> These girls were very insightful, very candid, very honest about what they would like to see in a father. I have a 16-year-old um, male client whose um, parents went through a fairly messy divorce. He's my client because he's acting out with some issues around his family and stuff. And I'm asking him to tell me about the dynamics of the family and the divorce. And to be honest with you, this 16-year-old kid is incredibly insightful. I think his assessment, he hasn't been to college or no counseling schools or anything, but his assessment of the dynamics happening in the family, I would say are fairly accurate. Kids, teenagers, <clears throat> get a pretty good read on things growing up. Many of those teenagers grow up to be adults just like folks sitting in this room right here. What are some of the observations you have made around conflict? What are some of the models you have seen um, demonstrated for you? Is it safe enough to give me some feedback on that? Was anyone willing to do that? I'd be curious what kind of models you had seen. Yeah. To avoid it at all costs. Perfect. No conflict here, right? Yes? I think in our family it was pretend it never happened. Pretend it never happened. Pretend that the event causing the conflict never happened or just pretend like all the conflict that we just had didn't happen. Perfect. And we go back to being the Brady Bunch. Excellent. Jimmy. Hmm. Yeah. Perfect. My parents would solve conflicts by arguing about it and dragging each other under the bus until yeah. one of them won. Until one of them won. Excellent. And then once that happened, they would not talk to each other for weeks at a time. Yeah. Very nice. Creating that intimacy. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
parents wouldn't do exactly that. They would, uh, they would start an argument when dad got home from work. It probably was yesterday's argument. <coughs> they would argue until, uh, well, dad kicked a hole in the door or, or slapped mom or did something like that. And, and then they'd be mad at each other until the next day. And mom would, when dad got home, she'd pick up the argument where it left off. And they'd do it over again. <laughs> For 10, 12, 13 years. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. 19 or 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mom would be verbally abusive and my dad would be passive aggressive. Yeah. So. Yeah. Three-way thing, A and B would pick on C and then C would figure out how to get on B's side and they'd both pick on A. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Excellent. Kind of like everybody loves Raymond. Oh yeah, good, see? Isn't it amazing that all these things that we grew up now, you make millions of dollars on, you know, primetime sitcoms now. A little scary. Anyone else? Vernon, yeah. I have a couple, um, when there is conflict, pretend it's not happening. Yeah. Just be quiet so it passes. Yeah. The other party had an ugly face and body motions, not physical abuses, but that were scary, not avoiding, inviting, and a voice that matched. You hid, you ignored. You did not acknowledge your fear or your feelings. There was name calling and silence for weeks. Man. Wouldn't it be refreshing if we can move from connected with the people in our lives, whether that's a spouse or a partner or a friend or a roommate, where things are good and connected and open and free and vulnerable to conflict where you can be permission to be angry, have it be dealt with, and resolve it all the way back to we are truly connected again. We are, there's nothing left unresolved between us. And wouldn't that be nice if that could happen within an hour? How many of you think that that is, you know, shooting for the moon? <laughs> That's hard to do. That's hard to do. Um, bad news. Again, I'm going to just give it to you straight up here. The things that we're going to talk about tonight is sort of like the lockpicking story that I told you early on. I can teach you how to do some of this stuff. Knowledge and understanding once put into practice will take you a short time. I don't know, I've been married 17 years and I'm working on it still. A short time to get really, really good at this. But you can get good at this. I love sitting with my couple's clients who learn how to talk and listen to each other. And you can watch the light bulbs just start firing off because it's like, oh my gosh, I feel heard. I feel understood and I don't feel attacked or threatened. This is whole new territory. I like this. Once you get a taste of it, once you get a taste of it, it's like, okay, this is worth trying to get really, really good at. So the nuts and bolts tonight, try it out. Be patient. Now, caveat number two, bad news number two. Conflict tends to be resolved when both parties are participants. If one person says, I'd like to get this resolved, and the other person says, eh, I think I'm going to go passive aggressive, or stonewalling, or rejecting, or lashing out, or something like that, 
despite the best skill set you have, resolution cannot come. Now the good news is, as we move into next week, it doesn't mean you're stuck like Chuck. It means that you can still make changes, that you can still forgive, and you don't have to be held hostage to that, but other dynamics and other things change as well. But conflict resolution requires two active participants. That's what we're going to look at. All right, here's where we're going tonight. We're going to look at ingredients of healthy conflict. That's the what. What does healthy conflict usually include? Then we're going to look at the practical model for conflict resolution. That's the how. I'm actually going to give you a step-by-step. -step. If you can kind of go from this point to this point to this point, it's kind of a roadmap to help you navigate this conversation. Uh, and then finally, apparently, that's it. Or there we go. And then we actually ask some questions tonight. So we're going to blaze through this. All righty. Healthy conflict resolution. Here we go. How many have heard the story of Goldilocks? Mm. Makes sense? Goldilocks, little girl, gold ringlets, hair, meets a house full of bears. Don't ask me, weird fairy tale. She goes in, uh, what does she find in there? She finds lots of things that are either too big, too small, too hot, too cold, too soft, too hard. Goes through the whole thing, falls asleep, bears come home. Depending upon the version you read, either they eat her or she runs away. Don't know which version you've read. You guys ever read grim fairy tales, by the way? There's a whole counseling session in and of itself. Talk to these guys. Just disturbing. Making boots out of skin and everything else. Weird. Anyway, Goldilocks principle. Conflict is like porridge. If it's too hot, if there's too much attacking, if there's too much venom, if there's too much heat, people can't stay in it very long and they bail out whether that's they go passive or they just, you know, become absent. If conflict is too cold and nobody's saying nothing to no one, resolution never happens as well. Conflict has to be just right. You have to have enough communication, enough, enough honesty, enough bringing up of the issues in a way that's going to work that will make it tolerable for most people. Now, my daughter, my daughter, a couple months ago, um, actually last winter, uh, made herself a nice big glass of um, cup of hot chocolate. And as she took a sip, scalded the inside of her mouth. I mean, it was probably one of the worst mouth burns I've ever seen. If we've been burned before, we can't quite stand as much temperature. And that becomes a learned skill set again. So depending upon what you've had modeled, you might gravitate towards one end or the other. You, you can't stand the hot, and so you need it to be much, much cooler. Or if you've been on the cold end of conflict and no one's saying anything to, nothing to nobody, then you might want to have it heat up a little bit. Understanding where you're at and where the person that you're fighting with is at, if that's possible, if you have some sort of a long-term relationship with them or even a short-term, if you know their story and you know where they're at, you will be able to navigate some of this a little bit more respectfully, a little bit more appropriately, because you don't expect too much of them. Again, if they've been burned, you don't expect them to be able to tolerate that heat quite as, quite as much. So uh, the Goldilocks principle, uh, right there. One of the important ingredients of any conflict is you have to be honest. This is, 
again, I wish it wasn't quite as simple because it, when you just say it, even up here right now, I'm saying, well, duh, come on. But trying to do it, that is hard. I have a um, couple a while back in my office. He had all sorts of hesitations and reservations to speak what his feelings were regarding how his wife has either treated him or just some just normal things about his wife, but he's been terrified to say these things. And so he went the really cold method. And after 12, 13 years of marriage, um, it felt like they were drifting apart. And so the first activity we did is we said, all right, we're just going to help you learn how to put everything out onto the table and to finally be honest. And again, these weren't scathing things. These were just, he had learned, he had learned, you just don't bring those things up. You just muscle through it. You just man up. You don't talk about these things and end up being fairly resentful like his dad and all those other things like that. So being honest is hard to do in a conflict. What would that sound like? What would that sound like at all? I am mad at you. Okay? Again, sounds easy versus just standing there, not saying anything. What's wrong? Typical answer to that is nothing. nothing. Yeah. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Being honest is just hard to do, but it is absolutely necessary to have, um, to have any forward progress. Something called the hostage mentality. If you are hesitant to say things honestly because of fear of the other person's reaction, that other person, in essence, is holding you hostage. If they will either fly out the handle or go quiet or go absent or withdraw or attack or anything like that and it makes you afraid, then, then you are being held emotionally and relationally hostage by that person's reactions. Uh, what was the movie? I think it had Keanu Reeves in it. He was a cop, which is, you know, pretty much every Keanu Reeves movie. Um, and he, another guy, I think they were bomb guys, and they kept running these scenarios. What would you do if? What would you do if? And they said, what would you do if so-and-so had a hostage? And what, was, what did a partner say? Shoot the hostage. Shoot the hostage. Exactly. You know, shoot him in the leg. No more hostage problem. Now they can deal with the real problem. Hostage mentality means sometimes you have to shoot the hostage. You have to simply take the hostage situation out of the scenario. And that happens, again, easily by being honest. Back to the control week. Remember that? If I say something true, you have offended me, and you fly off the handle, whose responsibility is that? Correct. The fly off the handle person. Can I make anyone do anything? No. Not really. No. I got a little hesitant look there, like maybe, I think, sort of. Based on past experiences. Yes, based on past experiences, you might have a pretty good guess of what they're going to do, but are you actually causing that? I have four kids at home. And I've been trying to get this lesson into my oldest son's head because when his younger brothers do something that tick him off, that just make him mad, 
he, you know, it's not my fault. He did this and that makes me react this way. And it's like, actually, no. You get to choose your response. You get to choose your reaction. We have that choice. So back to the control piece. Control there is a good thing. We control our response, but if we are honest, we don't necessarily take responsibility for the other person's reaction. My hope is, is that's freeing to you. Now, if we don't want to be hurtful, if we don't want that person to feel bad, sometimes we say, all right, I'm not going to be honest, I'm not going to be truthful. Again, it's not our responsibility to, to stop or to adjust or to control the other person's response. Is that making sense? We have a question. Well, I, just this honesty piece is great, but honesty without compassion is just brutality. It, yeah. Like, your haircut is horrid. Yeah. I mean, what point? She's yeah. Not <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was actually looking at you, so. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, and I think that society has gotten to that point so, so far away from the Christian sense of love and compassion that we're just so, we're so quick to throw it in people's faces, our honesty, our truth. That's entitlement. That might not be, entitlement connected with honesty. Anything that is good can always be corrupted. That's the sinful world that we live in. Okay, sex is good, been corrupted. Music is good, can be corrupted. Honesty is good, can be corrupted. So it always depends upon the, you know, the, delivery method for sure okay. for sure um, another question yes um, I guess the other, the other thing I was thinking is that even though you're not responsible like morally for the other person's reaction correct you still have to deal with the consequences of that reaction absolutely and so couldn't there be times where like it just like wasn't safe enough to be honest yep absolutely short answer as an adult, if it's not safe to be honest, why are you in that relationship? As a child, if it's not safe to be honest, that's where we learn really, really, really good adaptive strategies that when we become an adult and we have power and control, we have to unlearn. Believe me, if a child gets smacked every time he, is, he just speaks up, please, there is wisdom in being silent. That's a very good, wise, adaptive strategy. But if that same child grows up and now he's sitting in my office with his wife saying, we've been married three years and he doesn't talk at all. That same strategy, which was beneficial back here, is now detrimental here. So we have to learn different strategies and that's where knowing yourself, doing your work, understanding what worked here may not be the best tool here. Remind me to tell you a story about the basketball playing Eskimo sometime, okay? That's a really profound theological story. Um, these guys. What are those guys called? Politicians. Technically presidents, but they're called politicians. <laughs> Definition of being politic or political is when you say things you think the other person wants to hear. Let me say that again, because I'm not sure many of us have a good working definition of politic. When we say things, not honestly, but when we say something that I think you want to hear, again, welcome to politics, that's all they do, make promises all day long, that is being dishonest and that is being political. So when you have churches, when you have businesses, when you have families, when you have organizations that are politic, 
not a whole lot gets done because there isn't a lot of honesty based or, or, or cementing their communication. When that happens in a home, when that happens in a relationship, it's really hard to get, anyone been in those conflict situations where you're, you, you know what you're trying to get from the other person, they're just saying that because they think that's what they, they, they think that's what you want to hear. And it's like, come on, just get in the fight. Let's go. Let's actually get something done. It, it, it just cuts the legs out from underneath you when you're trying to get any resolution done. So be aware of being political, politic. <sighs> Patrick Lincioni, he's a really good kind of um, team builder, uh, business trainer. He has the phrase that says, I can speak with passion about my convictions and opinions as easily as you can speak about your convictions and opinions. That's a relationship based on honesty. When I can be honest and passionate and have a conviction and put it out there, and I am also receptive to what your passion is passion about and what you have convictions about, when we can hear that, that's when problems get resolved. That's when things get taken care of. Everyone tracking so far? That's just honesty, man. Uh, one of the other components that we have to have um, is a willingness to change. If we are not willing to change, if we have dug in our heels, if we have um, cemented our position and we will not move from that, you might as well get really good at conflict because you're going to have an awful lot of it. Um, when you're holding on to those positions without hearing, without entertaining um, the other person's position or opinion, then it shuts down all, all communication or elevates the temperature. Now, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that you need to give up on your convictions by any means. If you believe something and you hold to it strongly, absolutely. Um, hold on to those things. But would it be a fair guess to say that most of us in this room right here don't have it 100% correct on all of their beliefs and convictions and opinions? Would that be a, a fair guess to say? Might be one or two of you that you know, have it exactly right, you believe the exact right thing, you have the perfect interpretation of everything, and that you are kind of like this omniscient person who, who can speak wisdom in everyone. Um, but I know I'm not that person. So there's always things that we need to be willing to um, adjust, especially when it comes to what I'll call subjective things. Basically, subjective things are anything around the realm of feelings. Hmm. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit later tonight, but if, you know, uh, someone says, you know, that, that made me feel really, you know, um, un unincluded or whatever. If I'm not willing to change, it's like, no, -uh, that shouldn't have made you feel that way. <laughs> well, it did. If I'm not able to adjust and I'm not able to come around and be able to say, well, wait a, wait a second, maybe her, her opinion or his opinion might be valid. If I can't come around, if I'm willing to change, then again, communication sort of just breaks down. So a willingness to adjust and to change. <sighs> One other thing, being able to identify what is the underlying need, what's the root of this conflict, what's the nugget 
that is driving this. And here is, as a counselor, I'll admit that people come into my office looking for quick, easy answers to a lot of complex problems. And there's this huge desire within counselors to be able to provide those quick, easy answers. I don't have many of those, but I got one. And here it is. This is the freebie for you guys. This is as close to the magic bullet when it comes to conflict. I think I've been able to identify the root of 99% of all conflict within, within a marriage or a, a relationship like that. How about this? You guys ready? I got your attention now? This is the magic bullet right here. I call it, I call it the two S's. Men, you have, this might be a fun game. We ought to play this game, okay? Men, you have one primary need that um, this is what life's about for you. And women, you have one primary need. They are different needs, but they both begin with the letter S. All right? Now, we can play this game in one of two ways. We need to see if the men know what their primary needs are. Wouldn't that be fun, ladies? Okay. Or we can see if the ladies know what that primary need is, guys. So that might be better for us. That might get us off the hook. And by, but then the turnaround is you've got to be able to identify what their primary need is, and that might be hard. So, bye. Excuse me. Thanks I for coming. Um, anyone want to venture a guess? The women's tends to be a little easier to find than the men's. Men's dance all around it, but they can't find the S word. So how about ladies? Lady, I don't know what I want to do. Should I have the guys guess? Let's see. Guys, any guy in the room who thinks he's really in touch with what women need? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you say what? What do you think, ladies? No, we have some disagreement. Security. I call that synonymous with safety. Okay, so... Security or safety, that tends to be, again, we're going to paint broad stereotypical dynamics here, but um, women tend to gravitate towards things that make them feel secure, makes them feel safe, right? Men, any women in the room want to give it a shot? Starts with the letter S. What is their primary need? And it's not the one you're all thinking, okay? Self-esteem. Self-esteem, yes, but it is a different word. But this is what they derive their self-esteem from. Again, I told you we dance all around it. Men? Ben, thank you very much. Men, we want to feel special. We want to feel important. We want to feel dynamic and masculine. Now, conflict. If you're getting down to the underlying need, what is the nugget of most conflict? It typically surrounds when a wife's need for security somehow hinders or prohibits a husband's need to be, did I say significant for the living? Okay. Her need for security compromises his need for significance or vice versa. Think of it this way. Honey, guess what? I got a job transfer. We're going to Duluth. It's going to be great. It's going to be a raise. It's going to be you know, a nicer house. It's going to be good for the kids. Isn't that great? because men derive their significance from two primary areas. What are they? What they do for a living, and it's the other ass everyone was thinking about, okay? 
their, their sexuality, their ability to um, connect and, and to um, resonate with the significant woman in their life, okay? That is typically where, that's typically where we men gain our significance from. So, good job opportunity. We're moving to Duluth. Can't wait. And we're moving, you know, a week from Tuesday. The wife is going... I just settled here. I just made friends, you know, I've just got established, right? And so she's thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? I mean, how are we going to connect? What's going to happen? All these things. And so her sense of security, the unknown, and again, we're painting broad stereotypical things here. Um, her sense of security is now compromised because his need for significance kind of trumped that or vice versa. Honey, you can't go out tonight with the guys because I just, I, I miss you and I, and I haven't seen you even though we spent the last, you know, 90 days together after work and you haven't had a chance to go out at all. But I just miss you so much that I, I just, I want you to be here with me. Her need for security is getting in the way of his need of significance. And that can lead to conflict and things like that. Broad statement, I know, but I think that if you get down to most marital conflict, it revolves around one of those two S's. Someone's significance or someone's security has been compromised in some way. Now, if I'm wrong, if, if someone has another one, please let me know so I can broaden my theory. But so far, I seem to be batting pretty good, pretty good averages right now. So if you can identify what the underlying need is, you tend not to chase all the bunny trails and all the rabbits and everything that kind of are running all over the place, and you get down to the core of the matter. Wouldn't it be nice if that scenario I just ran the wife can say, honey, I understand that that moving to this new place is going to be fantastic and we need to talk about it, but I got to tell you, that scares me. I'm a little insecure. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not sure about the kids. I'm not sure about friends. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure. And it kind of, I'm a little uncomfortable. Can we slow things down or can we talk about those things? And again, if the husband is any, any sort of compassionate, he'll go, whew, okay, maybe I might have just kind of blown, blown over her with all this excitement, and I need to be able to listen to her. We need to both get on board in the same way. That tends to not lead to a conflict. It tends to lead to communication and understanding and all those kinds of things. So the two S's, get to the underlying needs. Questions about that? Yes. Yeah, see, I've heard that kind of, uh, those terms are, well, I, no, and I'll disagree, I'm not exactly sure what camp that comes out of, but I've heard kind of that contrast as well. I think men and women need to both be loved, and I think men and women both need to be respected. Um, believe me, I can talk to my wife in a very disrespectful way, and she lets me know. She's very <laughs> quick at that, and vice versa, if I'm not very loving to her, or if she's not loving to me. So I think that I use those terms differently than I think how they might be defining it. Um, but it depends upon what kind of program you're walking people through. So, yeah. <sighs> One last thing for kind of the what of good conflict resolution. Empathy. <laughs> empathy is feeling bad when someone else is feeling bad. So why in the world would I want to have empathy? Bart Simpson. Um, <laughs> empathy is the capacity to hurt, 
for another person without owning that hurt. If you own that hurt in an unhealthy way, it's called codependency. If, you, if that pain resonates with you, but you don't own the responsibility for that, that's called empathy. Um, one of the really strong dynamics within a lot of conflict is this idea of, I've done something and that has hurt you. You're now telling me that has hurt you. And the first thought to my head is, I didn't mean that. You shouldn't be hurt. And so I, now I make a pretty good argument as to why you shouldn't be hurt that way. Because what I did, I had good motives, I had good intentions, I had all these things, and so I'm not even entertaining the idea that you might be hurt. The you shouldn't be hurt thing is a lack of empathy. Empathy is when it's like, wow, I don't understand why what I did hurt you, but apparently it did, and I need to believe you. I need to believe that that feeling that you have is true and valid. One of the um, less proud moments in my life, I was a camp counselor as a senior in high school. Did I tell you this story? I can't remember. No. I can't remember all the stories I tell. I was a camp counselor as a senior in high school for a whole bunch of junior high kids. And in high school, I was the definition of insecure. I didn't know myself. I didn't know a whole lot of things. And I actually went to be a counselor at this camp because the girl I had a crush on was going to be a counselor at the camp. And that's a really good reason to go be a camp counselor because you get to be next to the girl you got a crush on. We go through this um, three, four, five day weeks of camp, or, uh, days of camp and coming up to the next to the last day. And I'm standing with another counselor and there's about 300 junior high kids kind of pressing towards us because we're guarding the doors to the lunch, the lunch hall, telling everyone you've got to wait you know, two minutes before you go in and eat. And there was this kid who was mouthing off to me because he's in junior high. And that's pretty much the only thing that you know, junior highers know how to do to some high school senior that they don't have any respect for. So he's mouthing off to me, doing all these things. And I had no idea how to handle this. And he said something that shot right through one of those cracks in my armor and stung in the heart. Remember that? Didn't know my stuff. And so to prove to him that I am better and stronger than him, I take him by the scruff of the, of the shirt, spin him around, and push him up against this post next to the hall, next to the doors, thinking, I am showing him. I am bigger than him. I'm going to put him in his place. And when I pushed him up, I, did, I didn't hit him hard. I was, still had a little restraint. It was all, you know, posturing. But when I pushed him up against the pole, he winced in a way that says, this kid's in real pain. But because he's a junior high kid in front of all these other kids, you can see him fighting back the tears and this look of disgust and pure hatred for me comes across his face. And that nonverbal communication right there says, Paul, you've just crossed the line. You need to back off. So I, I, I take my hands off. And he gives me this dirty look and turns and walks away into the crowd. And his friend, who also now has this look of disgust towards me, says, two days ago, he was on an event here at the camp and he broke a rib. 
And so when I pushed him up against that, it just crunched that rib. Any other kid in the camp, if I would have done that to him, it would have been nothing but blustering and posturing, and we would have had words, and everything would have been okay. But this kid had a pre-existing wound. He was sensitive in that area that I had no idea about. So something that was fairly benign, again, not, not good judgment on my part, but action-wise, fairly benign, inflicted much more pain because of the wound that was already there. Now, I could have gone up to him and said, what is your problem? That shouldn't have hurt. I mean, I didn't hit you that hard. Get over it, buddy. How much resolution do you think there's going to be happening here, you know, between the two of us? Not a whole lot. People hurt for reasons. And if we approach that with curiosity rather than judgment, then we tend to be able to get to that underlying nugget easier because we tend to believe them. And when someone feels believed and heard, they tend to be a little bit more receptive to working things out. You need to be able to empathize to understand where someone is coming. One of the easiest ways, I think, to grab hold of empathy is if you put it into the third person. Um, I had this conversation today with a couple who were sitting in my office. He's sharing something difficult or hurtful that she has done, and she immediately, because we're normal and because they're learning this whole communication thing, she immediately in her head's going to the, I didn't mean it, uh, it's not what I intended, um, if it's only because of this and this and this, and kind of all these explanations and, let's say, defensive kind of posturing. And so I said, hold on, time out. I said, what would you be feeling if your husband came home and said, my boss at work is treating me this way and I am feeling isolated and discouraged and disappointed and I don't feel like I can say anything because my boss just doesn't listen to me. Her first response is what? I want to go yell at the boss. I said, yeah, I know, but you can't go fix the situation. All you can do is listen to him. What, would, what do you think you'd be feeling? And she could easily find that. I, I feel bad for him. I, I feel really discouraged that, you know, he's not being listened to and he's hurt. And you can see this shift happen in her where she actually, honestly understood his feelings. And I said, fantastic. Do you think it's possible that he can feel that if his boss treated him that way or if you treated him that way? Do you think his feelings are the same? And you see this light bulb come on and go, oh, I guess that's true. I guess he can feel that way. Now, I don't like it that I caused it, but that's a whole secondary issue. She was able to understand where he was coming from, and you could see this look on his face that goes, oh, I finally feel heard. I finally get it. When you can put empathy into the middle of any sort of conflict, resolution comes much, much quicker. Now, I'll be honest, empathy's tough especially in the midst of a heated argument, because we don't like being wrong. We like being right at all costs. We want to win. We don't want to make it equitable for both people. We have this competitive nature. And so if the mentality is I have to win, then empathy is not present. And again, I know it's hard, and it takes a lot of practice. If you don't think you're very good at empathy, here's a fun little assignment. Um, put on some romantic comedy and hit mute 
so you can't hear any of the dialogue, especially one if you haven't seen it before, so you can't be quoting the lines in your head. And then try to play the game of, what's that person feeling? What's that person thinking? Why do you think that person's feeling that way? And you start to read the nonverbal communication rather than the verbal communication. And you can start to hone those skills. Again, kind of a weird party game, but it works. Um, I have to ask myself all the time, because I hurt my wife too much, um, if somebody else did this to my wife, what would she be feeling? And I need to take care of that feeling first rather than trying to be right first. And when that happens, um, life tends to be good. Now, again, I'm going to put a broad stroke thing here. This isn't all the time. This isn't, isn't, in, in, isn't in every relationship. But in relationships between men and women, men, we tend to be able to compartmentalize a little bit easier, just kind of how we're built. So oftentimes, we end up having to go first and putting our feelings on the back burner temporarily so that we can take care of our women's heart, make them feel heard, validated, and then once they feel heard and validated, then it's your responsibility to say, okay, now can we deal with my feelings here? And you put yours back onto the front burner and you deal with it. Don't put it on the back burner and just leave it there. That's called burying things and that doesn't work good either. <laughs> Empathy. Questions at all? You guys are easy tonight. Okay. Oh, when you fail someone, really, really important. Be aware of your level of shame. When you make the mistake and it's affecting the relationship, you tend to be sitting in your own feelings of shame. That's why we talked about shame early on in this process. Be aware of what those are. Be aware of how you're feeling. When someone else, when someone fails you, anyone know where this is going? Come on. Be aware of your level of grace, your graciousness, your willingness to tolerate their failings, their, their imperfection. Remember, if you're not perfect, they're not perfect either. And if you can sit in that graciousness, then resolution tends to happen much, much quicker, much, much faster. Hmm. All right. How about we move to, man, this is. There we go. How about practical model for conflict resolution? Let's give you a nuts and bolts kind of template to follow. This is a real good starting point for those who are learning how to fight really well. For those who want to learn a different way to fight, how about we put it that way? Something that might be a little different than what you've seen or practiced. Uh, first thing that you got to do is you need to call out the elephant in the room. You have to just say, we ain't right. There's something between the two of us. If you don't do that, you tend to go to the um, passive-aggressive model. Um, the, I'm going to tell you there's something wrong, but I'm not going to tell you there's something wrong. You're just going to have to figure that out on your own. Again, it's a stereotypical, um, honey, what did I do? What have I done to upset you? And the answer of, I'm not going to tell you. You should already know. No. Oh, I don't like this game because it's a, it's a no-win situation. When there's conflict, 
just step up and say, listen, something's not right between us. Can we get this right? Can we, can we get this you know, resolved between the two of us? And again, that's an invitation. The other person says no or yes, but isn't fighting quite fairly or doesn't have the skills for good, healthy conflict resolution. Um, it's a little harder process. We tend to teach other people how to treat us by the way we treat ourselves. So if we call things out, if we are respectful, if we are empathetic and listening, we tend to teach them how we want to be treated. So you can model some of that if the person you're fighting with doesn't quite you know, have the same skill set. But you have to call out the elephant in the room. Next, confrontation is necessary. Matthew 18, 15. Can anyone tell me what that passage is about? And this is hard. Again, when we truly understand scripture, it's tough. It's tough to live out. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. I know there are many, many people who are very uncomfortable telling someone, you have offended me. Now, for some of us, that might be really easy, but I think for a lot of people, that's difficult to, to just go up to someone and say, you know what, something ain't right between you and I because you have deeply offended me. But if there's something between you and another believer, you got to get that fixed before, before, well, certain, you know, things can happen within a Christian faith. You know, you're supposed to take care of that before communion. You're supposed to not let... Um, things fester between you guys. You've got to get these things resolved. So the model is you need to call it out for someone else. And again, kindly, graciously, honestly, how you deliver that message will depend upon the response you get. You'll teach us that in the next class. <laughs> how to deliver that message? Yeah. yeah, well, I'll teach it to you right now. Tends not to work real well by saying, hey, jerk, you know what? You're ticking me off. <laughs> How's that working for you? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the um, little reminder you give people driving down the road who are cutting you off and you're letting them know that they've offended you, you know, through certain nonverbal communication. Again, you tend not to get a lot of receptive conflict resolution with them. They just tend to either escalate or things like that. So we are encouraged to confront kindly, respectfully, but we are encouraged to confront if we are the wounded party. I think my batteries are going low. Oh, gosh. <laughs> there we go. I want you to seek first to understand. Stephen Covey, who knows the rest? Then to be understood. Again, most conflict is, I want to tell you, why you're wrong. I want to tell you why I'm right. I want you to be able to understand me first. That, especially if the other person doesn't know that it's their turn to do the understanding, that <laughs> creates all sorts, of, all sorts of tension and conflict. That's the harder position to take is the understanding, the understanding position. You know what, there's something between us. Can you tell me what's going on? I'd like to understand kind of if I've offended you or if, or if you know, I've done something. 
and then I'm willing to listen. I'm seeking to understand and not just, not just listen. I think I got a quote about this. Let me see if I can find it real fast. Most people listen not with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. So when someone's talking in your head, you're going, all right, when's it my turn to tell them what I'm thinking? When's it my turn? Is it my turn yet? Remember that clip from Hitch at the very beginning of the movie where he's, he's teaching that guy how to you know, go on the date? And he says, you know, when she's talking, listen. Don't be thinking about this and don't be thinking about that. Listen to what she's saying. Engage. And then engage back. The ability to listen is a very, very, very important skill set. Because if we truly try to understand where someone comes from, that actually diffuses so much of the animosity and the strong emotions that a resolution can come fairly quickly. And again, if you're, if you're in conflict with a healthy person, they tend to be able to say, okay, now, how can I listen to you? So seek first to understand. So most of my conflict is uh, with my daughter. Okay. 15. Perfect. This doesn't apply. Uh, okay. Oh, it didn't make sense. Okay, good. No, um, and so I try. Like, I will start out with, okay, what's going on? Yeah. Like, and so I'm trying to understand nothing. Or yep. uh, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. So you nailed those. Yeah. Um, and then so she will not, and that's what I get. And so, okay, well, let me start with where I'm at or how I'm feeling or what I see. And in the middle of my talking is when then she wants, in just a second now, okay, now I'm done. What? Well, nothing. Never mind, or just turn the radio back up, or whatever, you know. And so, um, and yet I've done that multiple times, you know. Yeah. Every time, like I'm in the middle of a, you know, I'm in the middle of a sentence when she wants to start in, and and I, I don't know. Realistically, I think she just wants to defend whatever I've just said, or I shouldn't be feeling that way, or whatever. But but then she won't engage. I guess is what. So your question is. How do you understand when the person won't? Yeah. Uh, you actually are in a pretty good situation here for a couple reasons. One is, um, as a parent, you get to model, you get to shape what this looks like. So in your conflict with your spouse, okay, you get to say, hey, come watch us fight. This will be great. Imagine that. So that now you can, when you're having conflict with her, you can say, this time, can we try this? Because this tends to work out better. This is how, you know, this is how we do it. Um, and if she can have a, an idea of what that looks like, and it usually works really good if there's resolution, and she can see that part of it too, not just the conflict part, but the, oh, this actually works. If, they, if she can see that, then she has a, it's not theoretical anymore, it's now practical. I've seen how this looks and what this, how this fighting happens. Um, Here's the other bad news. Trying to understand a 15-year-old girl's mind, yeah, that's rough. That's hard, especially for an older you know, male. It's like, really, the title, you know, Mars and Venus, you know, John Gray, great title because it's like we are on two different planets. And not only is she a, a female, but she's a young adolescent female, which means the the 
Wow, don't shoot me here, guys. The capacity for rational thought is a little, you know, further away. Right. <laughs> and that's not true, but, but no, very, oh, okay, we got other women agreeing. I just want people to hear that on the podcast. Other women are nodding their head here, okay? Um, no, that's true for anybody 15-year-old males, we're, yeah, we don't want to go there. Shoo. Exactly. So you're fighting both a developmental kind of understanding. They're learning how to articulate. They're ha learning how to move from concrete ideas, you know. Boy, that's another fun thing on the challenge course. We run sixth graders through there. Why did you guys fall off the log? Concrete answer is my shoes are slippery, right? Just A plus B equals I fall off the log. You take, you take, um, Adults, why did you guys fall off the log? Well, we weren't supporting each other emotionally, and our, our teamwork needs to be, you know, <laughs> worked through a little bit better, and it's this theoretical, formal, operational kind of thinking. So teenagers, early teenagers, are in the midst of trying to figure out, you know, is this because of log slippery, or is it because, you know, there's some other dynamic going on here? And that transition can happen anywhere, you know, between 11 and... 29, so we'll see. Um, there's some great, fantastic literature. If you're not familiar with the um, Love and Logic series, that's gold if understanding. Um, Faber and Maslisch, um, uh, Siblings Without Rivalry, um, some of that stuff. That comes from the late 70s, but it's still solid gold when it comes to talk, or how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. Fantastic title. Um, so we can give you some of those as well, and that is understanding. Here's the bad news once she starts talking. Buckle up, buddy, because you are in for a long ride, because they just love to think and talk and process and put it out there and all of those things, and pretty soon you're going to be having tea parties and, you know, wearing funny hats, because it's just... She... But when a daughter knows she has the ear of her father there isn't much better. There isn't much better because the security she feels, the connection she feels, it's good for both halves. It's just solid gold. So work hard to develop that. Become a very good student of your daughter. Fathers of daughters, not only do you have to understand your wife, which is a lifelong process, but you have to understand the other women in your household, the younger women who are growing up. I have only one daughter. I got lucky. I got three boys. I got a buddy who has four daughters. Oh, man, oh, man. Bless his heart. Question. So the conflict has started and to be understood, and she continues to go on and on and on. Yeah. And I just wanted to stop at one point so I can reply to it one at a time. Yeah. How do you handle that? Yeah, here's, here's the easy answer for that. And again, there's many case scenarios, or many different options and scenarios for that. I've become real accustomed to asking this um, statement in, in my relationship with my wife. Honey, do you need me to fix this or do you want me just to listen? Do you just need to vent? And many times it's, I just need to process, I just need to get it out. And so now, all the pressure off of me having to reply or fix it or give my perspective or all of this, all gone. And now I'm just an empathetic ear, just listening, trying to stay connected and focused with her, all those things like that. Um, 
being, again, men, we like to fix things. And when we hear people sharing things with us, we naturally tend to gravitate towards, well, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? Let's get, just, let's go on. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> and you guys ever seen the uh, movie? Oh, shoot. I just lost the title. Sense and Sensibility? How about that for being in touch with my feminine side? Wow. <laughs> uh, is that the one? Shoot, I can't. Huh? Yeah, Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson and all the sisters and all those things. Okay, remember when the one girl gets sick and the Alan Rickman, who plays the, the suitor of one of them, is going crazy and he's standing outside the door. And what's he say? Give me something to do or else I'm going to go crazy. And Emma Thompson's character says, you could go fetch her mother. And this wave of, oh, finally, I got something to do. I don't have to just stand here anymore. I can go running. I can go riding through the pouring down rain and you know, risk pneumonia and get sick. But at least I'm doing something. It makes me feel good. right? So men, we tend to gravitate towards that. Women, uh, and that might not be what women need all the time. Sometimes they just want us to listen. Now here's the out, guys. I'm on your side. Here's the out. Sometimes it's OK to say, honey, my ears are tired. I, I'm having a hard time staying focused. I'm having a hard time connect. Can we pick it up tomorrow? Because here's the other, I got two really good rules. This is a new one I only came up with about a month ago because I kept bumping up into it over and over and over again in my counseling practice. Um, I call it the two T's. I have the two S's and the two T's, coincidentally. Um, never resolve conflict over text. Holy cow, that does not work. Just telling you that now. And I got so many clients who are trying that method. And whoo boy, not working good. So never use text to resolve conflict. And never, eh, most of the time, don't try to resolve things after 10 o'clock at night because you're both cooked. You're just done. And not a lot of, not a lot of healthy kind of resolution comes and it tends to get drug out until two, three in the morning. Um, and again, it isn't the, it isn't the complete full resolution that you want. So this is going to fly in the face of some, you know, theology you've heard in other places. I think it's okay to go to bed mad. I think it's okay to say you and I, we're mad at each other right now, but we're going to get this fixed tomorrow and I'm going to bed. And just, again, calling out the elephant in the room, acknowledging it, but saying, let's, let's, let's get this resolved when we both have emotional energy to devote to this so that it doesn't drag out our six hours. We can fix it in one. Isn't that wise use of your time and resources? I, I think it is. Again, that's what the couch is for, buddy. Yeah, that's exactly right. The conflict resolution tool, the couch. All right. So... So far, you're calling out the elephant in the room. You are letting someone know that you've been offended if you are the offender. Offendee? Offendee? <laughs> that sounds right. Um, and if you're the offender and you know it, hey, you know what? I think I said something that might have taken, come out bad or I might have offended you based upon, you know, this really, really cold shoulder you're giving me. So I need to own that. Um, and then you're going to seek first to understand, then to be understood. You're going to, at that point, um, oh, I keep writing these things down. I've got to get better at these PowerPoints. You're going to develop empathy skills, okay? You're going to understand what the other person might be feeling. So you want to be able to, we talked already about empathy. Um, I want you to 
Come on. I gotta get new batteries apparently. I want you to talk about your experience. This is, um, and again, another important tweak that when it happens, it tends to discharge a lot of the defensiveness. It looks like this. When you said or did such and such, it made me feel such and such. When you threw me up against the post, it made my rib hurt. Doesn't talk about my motivation. It doesn't talk about my internal state. It just says, when you did this, statement of fact, this is my perception, this is my feeling regarding that. So when you looked at that, when you looked at me that way, statement of fact, okay? When you looked at me that way, it made me feel scared, insecure, embarrassed, whatever that is. Again, when you have two healthy people who are fighting, when you're having two healthy people who are trying to resolve conflict, that statement can't be argued with. You can't say, no, -uh, you didn't feel that. Excuse me, I'm here. I'm pretty sure I did. I think I know what I'm feeling. Um, and if you can hear that and start to switch into the empathy piece, then you, then you can start to deal with what the pain is. Again, I know I'm throwing out a lot of stereotypical stuff right now, but it is the, it's the gunshot victim who's wheeled into the ER, and there's two doctors, okay? First doctor says, oh my goodness, you've been shot by a gun. Who shot you? What kind of gun was it? Where were they standing? Why, why did they shoot you there, okay? Where did they put the gun? When they, after they shot you, did they get away? Did they not get away? Have the police been called? Um, what's, the, what's the status of the investigation so far? Is that helpful at all to the gunshot victim? <laughs> Other doctor says, you've got a gunshot wound. Here's a shot of morphine. <laughs> and they're your new best friend because they take away the pain and they start dealing with the hurt. They don't deal with the motivation or the intention or the dynamic. They deal with the pain first. When the pain is resolved, when that is felt and understood, then you can now, with greater reserves, emotional reserves, you can go back to the, now, tell us what happened. I mean, why did you get shot? What's happening here? And that's when they can get some answers to try to, number one, make sure it doesn't happen again, and number two, try to resolve, bring some resolution to you know, that current situation so everyone is safe. So. If you talk about your experience, yes. Maybe you can help me out here. I've um, been rebuked a lot by many therapists. By yeah. That formula. And that's that taught me to say, when you said this, I felt this. The idea that you can make me feel anything. I've been taught and uh, very codependent. Um, it can be codependent if now my responsibility is to stop you from feeling that way. That's the codependency is I am responsible for your feelings. But I think it's a statement of fact that I can, I can give you a dirty look. That's, a, that's just observable by anybody. Um, and your feelings, that can be dependent upon a whole variety of reasons why you feel that way. Right, but I'm saying like, I can give a dirty look to three different people and they could feel three different things. Absolutely true. So it's very different than saying, you know, when you, just A, B, and C, I could, they could say, when you said X, Hans, I felt 
Y, or when you said X, I spelled Z, or whatever. Yep. But you made me seem like that's giving a huge amount of power to the other person. You did say you can't make this better. True enough. Your behavior. Right. When you did X, I felt this. Not even the make. Is All right. How would you how would you rephrase it? I so felt like, blank when you said blank. Um. Then there's no making. Fair enough. I mean, I, I'm willing to deal with the semantics here. Do you guys understand the principle behind it, yeah. though? Right. Yes. Is everyone on track there? I might be confusing you here because again, you can't make anyone feel anything. But the response is, you know, it made me feel this. Also, I think. You're hurt. Yeah. And this is weird. Again, we grew up in a society that says feelings aren't important. I don't know if Are you've. You sure? I don't know. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. That's true. Was that's, that's true. I but. Listen to it. Free to be you and me. It was all about feelings. Yeah, but. Reality, objective reality was. I don't know. My household was completely different. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I, again, it's been my experience with a lot of people, and again, there's, everyone has their own experience, that we tend to, in conflict, more, try to go more towards the argumentative, rational, proof, evidential basis kind of thing. We don't spend a lot of time in the empathy, feelings component side of things. My daughter, this is you know, to help you out, um, Growing up in a counselor's home is a terrible thing. It should never happen to any of kids, but my kids are stuck. Um, and so when my daughter went into second or third grade, she comes home one day and says, Mom, Dad, uh, so-and-so said this thing and it really hurt my feelings. And so I tried to talk to him and tell him how it made me feel. And he just looked at me and said, so, and turned away and walked away. Why didn't he listen to my feelings? <laughs> How come? Because in a house that, you know, emphasizes that a lot and validates and all sorts of things like that and tries to do that respectful thing, we now had to introduce her to the real world, <laughs> which says, let me just tell you how it's really going to be. Some people actually don't care. And that's where we have to build the internal resilience within her and that strengthening and that's so you find this balance in life. But overall, in relationship, being able to articulate and verbalize what tends to actually dictate our action um, will get you much further will get you much further in relationships when it comes to conflict the the way it typically goes is thinking thinking determines feelings and feelings determine actions if you don't deal with the feelings component of it if you're not even aware of how to identify the feelings that are going on there you tend not to understand your behavior a lot of times and then more about that later on. But um, John Gottman talks about the four horsemen. The four horsemen. Familiar with uh, John Gottman at all? Anyone heard his name? He was a researcher um, who did a whole bunch of um, studying and um, wanted to figure out why marriages last and why marriages don't last. So he sets up this uh, studio, which looks like kind of this room in a house, and it's mic'd, and, it's, and, it can, and it measures bodily sensations, you know, uh, skin temperature and, and tension and all that. And he brings couples in and has them fight. 
and he does this with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of counselors and is able to identify, if I remember the numbers correctly, he's able to accurately identify the success of a marriage staying together to about 70-80% accuracy rate. He got so good at it that he could, he and his, his researchers could identify in about, in about one minute the success or failure uh, percentage of a couple by just watching how they fight. Really solid research, really good stuff. And he came up with this stuff, thing called the Four Horsemen. Um, the Four Horsemen are, uh, begins with criticism. Criticism is attacking someone's personality or character rather than a specific behavior. You are a jerk. You are ignorant. You are stupid. You are insert name here. It's attacking their character rather than a behavior, rather than when you, when you forgot to pick up the milk. That was, you know, careless or whatever that is. That's when you attack someone's character. That's a first determinant on if this marriage, if this relationship is going to be successful or not. Avoid character attacks. Talk about the behavior. The next one, when it begins with character, uh, criticism, it then leads into contempt, which is the intention to insult and psychologically abuse your partner. I'm saying something because I want it to hurt. I'm trying to do this to retaliate, to get back. I don't want you to feel good. I want you to be in pain. That is contempt. That is, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about you. I have contempt for you. So I want to intentionally hurt or insult you. When the criticism leads to contempt, when contempt's been there long enough, it moves into defensiveness, which is neither person is willing to take responsibility for setting things right. That's the couple who says, this is what they do, and 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 this is why I'm mad, and this is why I respond this way, and this is why I, and this is what, because them and them and them. And the other person says, oh yeah? I got a pretty good list too, let me tell you. <laughs> they do this, and they do that, and they do this, and all this other stuff. And neither one of them is saying, here's what I contribute. Here's what I'm going to own first, and step into this relationship. When, when defensiveness is prevalent, um, it finally leads to stonewalling, which is poor communication leads to no communication. That's the, go ahead, attack my character. Go ahead. And you've built up those stones, you've built up that wall so high that it just bounces off. You pretend that it bounces off, you just don't even respond anymore. It's kind of the death throes of a relationship. So these researchers, Gottman's researchers, are able to see, they're able to identify these things super fast within kind of the first minute. Are there character attacks happening? Are they stonewalling already? Are they, you know, blaming the other person? Are, uh, what's going on here? Are they trying to purposely hurt the other person? And it only takes about a minute as you watch these couples fight, and you can tell them, yep, here's where they're at. And if they don't make a, a course correction now, they're going to crater out. And again, pretty accurate in, in their um, assessment of marriages now. Real, real good research. Real good research. Does that apply to other relationships? Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
Absolutely. Businesses, uh, family, you know, siblings. Um, <laughs> churches. I didn't say that, but um, <laughs> ministries. Man, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. I've heard something similar to that, but they also throw in animosity. Like as, as the final death blow, animosity. Oh, um, I haven't heard that one. I, I don't doubt it. That would, uh, you know, I don't think animosity in any relationship is really productive. So <laughs> tends to tends to, you know, mess things up. Finally, um, here's some truth about conflict. Just reminders again. Conflict is unavoidable if both people are living honestly. You put two people in a room for long enough, they're going to disagree about something. If you're honest. Really, if, if, you're, if you're truly honest, no two people think perfectly alike. And so you can live completely healthy and still have conflict in your life. Isn't that weird to hear? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think if we can just get better, then we can avoid conflict. If we can get better, we can avoid failure. That's not how it works because we can't control the rest of the world around us. So there's always going to be conflict and there's always going to be failure. Instead of trying to avoid it, let's learn what to do with it. If we're living honestly, there's going to be conflict. Conflict is often seen as a failure in relationship, which is not always true. Again, my wife has preferences. I have preferences. If we disagree on those things, we have conflict. We can have respectful conflict or we can have, we can have disrespectful conflict, but there's going to be conflict either way. Avoiding conflict doesn't necessarily make relationships better. That would be the, the porridge is too cold metaphor. If you are avoiding things, it doesn't mean that things are all better. It means that sometimes things aren't just being talked about. And that's where resentment, and that's where animosity, and that's where the um, kind of long-term cancer can take root in some of the relationships. And then finally, Healthy conflict is a sign of higher levels of trust in a relationship. Again, counterintuitive, but if I, if I actually trust this relationship, I can be honest with you, and I know that you and I can get into it, and we're going to be okay. The relationships where you're afraid to be honest, where you're afraid to enter into conflict, means you don't trust that person very much, or you don't trust the relationship very much. So sometimes conflict can be a sign that, you know what, we're okay, we're doing good, um, and that our relationship is strong enough to weather whatever conflict this is. So in a way, it's a good sign. I, I actually more worry about the relationships that come and say, we've never fought. Again, my first answer is, liar, liar, pants on fire. You just don't know, don't know that you're fighting, or the fighting that you're doing is, is so kind of um, co- Co what's the word I'm looking for? Coversive, thank you. Converted. Corrosive. It's a co-word, and it's bad. Okay? So questions at all about conflict? Yes. Um, I work in an engineering environment. Yeah. Uh huh. But we have rules for that. So how would you 
what they want, then you don't understand. Like, how would you approach that sort of conflict? I want to make sure I'm tracking here. So someone, you said, dies on the road? Yeah, so my job is someone calls and complains because someone died on the road Correct. and they want you to do something. Fix the defect in the road that yeah. caused, the, caused the accident. Yes. Perfect. And so what do you say to them? And when what their answer is, is wrong, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah, what do you say to that? Boy. <laughs> Let's close in prayer, shall we? <laughs> um, I know it's a hard one. Actually, it, it, I don't think it's actually that hard. Um, it's just you're not going to like the answer. Um, getting your way. Um, getting your way to avoid conflict isn't always the best thing. Well, yeah, that's obviously not what I'm going to do, but... I think what you can do as in your position is they are looking more for um, empathy <clears throat> without an understanding of reality. Does that make sense? Because yeah. the chances are there's a lot more dynamics going on than just, you know, changing the stripes on the road or whatever it else it is. And so you know that and you also know that they probably aren't going to be able to hear that. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to try to engage with them on a logical argument of, well, let me tell you why we can't change the radius of that curve or the bank of that, that, that street right there. It's just not going to work out because that's not what they're looking for. It is, I am, I am really, really sorry that that happened. I can imagine how, how difficult that would be. Um, tell me what you think we need to do to fix this, and I will write all of this down, and I will um, get it to the person who can handle it. And then that sits on your desk for however long it needs to, or you, you hand it off to the next person. If they can feel heard, um, that's probably the nicest gift that you can give them. And I, again, I can't believe I get to use this story so soon. Um, we had a tax snafu with our taxes um, that we sent in this last year, and they they put the money towards the wrong tax year and everything else like that, so we got another bill saying we haven't paid our taxes when we have. Uh, so I call up the IRS, which is a nightmare in and of itself, just to get to a real human being. This was on Wednesday last week. Um, and after 49 minutes of, dial of pushing buttons to get through their automated system, I finally ended up talking to a real person. I was on hold for about 20 minutes getting to this real person. I tell them I got this bill, I have a receipt for my payment, here's the receipt number. She says, no problem, let me look into this, blah, da, 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 da. Yes, we put this onto the wrong tax year, we'll go ahead and take care of that, but you still owe this amount of money for interest and fees and everything else like that. At which point, <laughs> what am I saying? Um, no, I'm pretty sure I don't because I, your mistake and I have this letter here which says, here's what my total was. I called up someone to make sure that this is the right total, I get them the right check. And so I'm kindly explaining this to this lady. I've been on the phone for 53 minutes. I got a little timer on my iPhone, okay? So <laughs> 53 minutes. And so as I'm kindly explaining this, she's saying, I'm sorry you were told the wrong information. No, we're not going to do anything about this. And I'm saying, that's unacceptable to me. Um, I need to, I need to click. Wow. Wow. Hangs up on me. It's one way to take care of, you know, getting rid of the conflict. <laughs> Not very happy, okay? Did you get her name? <laughs> and what good is it going to do? Because already on the phone, I can hear this poor lady, and she is tired because I am the 
49th person in the last three hours who has told her about my problem, and she actually doesn't care. Which at that point, again, here's a little freebie lesson for you. I can either say, I was just mistreated, I am so ticked off, and I am owed something, and I'm going to call them back, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, and I'm going to spend another three hours trying to track them down, yeah. all that. Or, and this will be the forgiveness week next week, I can go, oh, that sucks. I'm mad, and nothing I can do anyway. This is one of those we have in our home called the Life Sucks File. It's just the, there's nothing you can do about it, and it's the cost of living. And you just, you, it's, the fees aren't huge or anything like that, and just to get them off my back, and for me to go on happy and free and not have to deal with them anymore, I'm going to write them a check and mail it in and just be done and give myself some freedom. Now, am I entitled to that money? Sure. Am I in the right? Sure. But am I going to win? No. I don't, have, I, don't, I don't want to waste enough time and energy yeah, over, over the few not. dollars that it is. My time's more valuable than that. Yeah, you have to figure out what. And if it is that important, yeah, if it's that important for me to be that right, I have other issues I probably got to look at, okay? Yeah. Wow. It's the, um, it's the buddy I had who had bought a boxer, you know, a dog, and... Um, as six months old, they got run over the back leg, and they put $2,500 into pins and refixing this dog's leg and everything. And um, three months later, they come home and find it drowned in their pool. <sighs> There's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's all gone. Life sucks file. Just goes right in the file. <laughs> swimming, and swimming, and, you know, floaty wings for the next dog. Yeah. <laughs> Uh -huh. so a lot of times people pleasers will say like, well, it's not worth it. I'm just going to let it go. What are some questions that you can ask yourself to, to decide whether it is worth pursuing I think, conflict? I feel like she's just going to word people pleaser in the wrong context. People pleasers in and of themselves are dishonest. She said it, not me. <laughs> a people pleaser who tends to just kind of um, avoid. avoid the conflict. Um, what are some things that can be said to help you determine, should I step into this or should I avoid this conflict? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know at the moment. That's a great question. I wish I could come up with a fast. We have an answer? Ask yourself if you're going to matter in five years. There you go. That might be pretty good. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now, what if there is because it keeps coming back or mistakes? They keep coming back. You keep coming back. You know, I mean, eventually you need to yep. bring in outside counsel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Someone step up somebody and. Somebody checks you right before. Yeah. You write one to somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I would, let me think about it and I'll see if I can come up with a better answer but for you next not week. Or... That's just handling life. People pleasers are constantly telling people, other people, what they want to hear. That's my understanding. That's politics. People-pleasers people are trying to manipulate other people's feelings right. for the positive. Right. People-pleasers have a hard time letting people hurt or be disappointed or being frustrated. They have a hard time with people's negative, painful emotions. There's no negative emotions. You all know that. Painful emotions. 
Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. There's an appropriate place for every emotion. Yes, hi. You said something earlier today, like codependency can happen when you take responsibility for someone else's feelings. Mm-hmm. Was that what you said? Uh-huh. And if that, you know, say in a relationship like where someone hurts someone else, like that, what's the proper, if you can have empathy and you hurt for them, but if you feel like you are part of the, the source or the reason for their pain, how do you not be codependent? Or what is there a difference there? Um, yeah, the difference is um, I hear with the I hear the pain, I hear the hurt that you're having. Um, but again, back to the metaphor with the kid I hit, I didn't give him the broken rib. What I did didn't inflict the pain, uh, meaning I didn't cause it wasn't the source of that pain. Something that I did, you know, benignly, inflamed the already the already injury that was there. So um, again, it gets kind of wishy-washy here. Um, we need to take responsibility for our actions. By all means, I want you to hear that real clearly. Always take responsibility for your actions, but recognize that, like Hans said, this action in and of itself within three different people can create three different feelings. So there's always the transmission and there's always the receiving, the, the reception of that. You have to take both of those into consideration. And the codependent person says, it's my fault that this person is feeling angry because I did this. And it's my fault that this person is feeling betrayed that I did the same thing that I did. And it's my fault that this person is feeling this. I somehow have, am responsible for you know, your, those feelings. And it's my job to fix it. That, you're tied into, you know, I'm only happy if you're happy. That tends to be what codependency is, is my emotional state is dependent upon your emotional state. Yes. We're officially done, so if you all need to take off, you can do that, but I'll answer questions. Um, do, you approach, do you approach the hurt differently if you are the first wound, if you were the person that broke the kid's rib? Is that approach differently than being the person that hurt him after his rib was broken? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of articulate that. I wish I could clarify easier that there's cause and effect. My, my actions do cause someone to receive it in some way. So it, it, we don't live in a vacuum. So we're always responsible in that way. And sometimes when we're careless, either with words or physical or whatever, we just inflict wounds. Um, that's, that's the world we live in. The best way to handle that is to own responsibility for that. You know what? I was careless. I, I made a mistake. And yes, I, I broke your rib. Uh, I, I feel terrible. What do I need to do to make this right? And if you can just own that without denying it or explaining it away or other things like that, then, um, then it tends to work out much, much better. I had, I had to tell you the story about the, the bus driver, um, the three scenarios of the bus driver. But remind me, I'll do that next week. I want to honor your guys' time. So. And the Eskimo stories. And the Eskimo stories. <laughs> All right, we ought to talk about the basketball playing Eskimo driving the bus. All right. How about I pray real fast and we'll just let you guys out of here. <clears throat> Father, again, you are a good God and, and it is a privilege to just um, 
learn how to relate to others um, in ways that hopefully will glorify you. Uh, my prayer is that as each person here attempts to live better, to live more healthfully, um, to live more holy, that um, it will be met with success and that their relationships um, with those close to them will start to thrive and become safe and intimate and healthy. Thank you that you're a good God and that it's a pleasure to serve you. And in your name, amen.